You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Well, I think it made it work just for a few moments. Let's see if it can. Here's some words of Jesus taken from uh, the passage that Callum uh, read to us earlier. It simply says, it simply says this. If you hold to my teaching, you are my, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth that sets us free can often be a painful one. And that, of course, is what that wonderful poem is all about. Take this cup from me, says Jesus, but not mine, but your will be done. I will trap this room. I know this pain. I will embrace this pain. I will come through this pain. I will walk to a place of wholeness and healing. And through my sacrifice, many will be helped. Um, Nathan asked me if I talk about the word Messiah. Jesus as Messiah. Next week, Jill Rowe is speaking about uh, Jesus as anointed. Some of you would know that the word Messiah means anointed. And so this week, because Jill will speak on uh, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus is anointed next week. And of course, it's the, uh, it's the coronation as well. So I guess that what uh, Jill, uh, at point, I guess that what Jill is going to do is look at about what anointing means in terms of service of others. So this morning, without ending up with the same sermon twice over, done different ways round, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the other of the, what this term Messiah means. Messiah is a Hebrew uh, word. Uh, Messiah is an Arabic word, and it simply means one who is anointed. But they're anointed for a purpose, and that purpose is liberation. The purpose is liberation. Um, I may have told you this story before, but I was speaking at the uh, Royal College of Arts this week to a bunch of um, architects, and so I told it again, so I thought I'd tell it to, to you again. You know how brain goes. You kind of think to yourself, I have to tell that story again. So I was telling them about a firm of... Uh, um, uh, architects from Denmark who were appointed to a really important task. And um, in fact, I told the story there, and then one of the lecturers who was listening to me told me that he knew the firm that were involved in this happening. So um, this firm were appointed in Denmark to rebuild a large leisure centre in the middle of the town. And they were appointed to do this because there was a housing estate, a very poor housing estate, on the edge of the town. And uh, the people there were very unhealthy. Clearly, we all know that poverty and, uh, and poor health tragically go together, unfortunately. And so the town council decided that they really needed to rebuild the leisure centre, gym, swimming pools, etc., etc., because nobody from this poor community ever went to the town centre uh, and used the facilities there. And they realised that this leisure centre, this gym, 
was kind of 1970s built. It was art. It didn't look good. It wasn't glass. It didn't say welcome. It didn't say come in. It didn't say any of that kind of stuff. So what they decided to do was uh, uh, appoint some architects to do some work and come up with some drawings around all the massing, et cetera, et cetera, that was needed. And what uh, would be built was a brand new letter center that said, welcome, everybody's welcome here. So budget was set aside for this, rather a colossal budget, as you can imagine. And then months and months and months later, the architect welcomed into the council chair to present their PowerPoint, which would explain what the new design would look like and how it would enfranchise this community whose health was poor and life was shorter than anyone else's. The chief architect, the senior partner, stood up, welcomed everyone, and then put out the first slide. The council were, the cabinet were assembled and they were expecting some stunning, beautiful building which was going to attract people to get fitter and eat healthier and live longer. But instead, the first slide was simply this. It was the bus timetable. And there was a stunned silence across the room. They couldn't believe it. The bus timetable on the screen. And then the senior partner of this hugely uh, influential uh, partnership, uh, architectural partnership, simply looked at it and said this. You've already set aside a budget to pay us a fortune to rebuild the leisure centre and the gym and the swimming pool to enfranchise these people. But first of all, before you make that final decision, I invite you to look at this bus timetable. I think that you might find that just in the bus timetable and where the buses run from and to, might achieve the same goal for far less in the world. Sometimes we come up with the wrong answers to the simplest questions and then where we're in so much trouble. I saw this picture um, not so long ago. It's the wrong answer to a simple question. What is the mission of the church? And what is the mission of a Christ-centered person in the world in which we live? There it is, the church dressed up as a tank. The church dressed up to destroy those who disagree. We are the pure. We know the truth. Our version of the truth is the right version of the truth. Even other versions of the church have the wrong answers, but we've got the right answers. And our task is to go into battle and win that battle and blast our way through because others are blind. Others are behind us. Others are boxed in. Others are too fundamentalistic. Others aren't generous enough. Others aren't like giving us. Others aren't. And this becomes our answer all of the time. 
but we do it personally as well. And of course, the Jews did. They believed in a Messiah liberator. They believed that the Messiah, the liberator, was coming. But they believed that the Messiah, the liberator, would liberate them by pulverizing anyone else. The liberator, the Messiah, would set them free and destroy their enemies. Because of the way that we're hurt and loved by others, and we've all been hurt by others, we've been misspoken of, we've been rejected. Many of us here, many of you have been rejected for who you are in your core. To be the actual person you are, you've been told you're wrong, you don't fit. You're not right. And our personal response to that can be just like the response of the church. We live in a society that's shifting from traditional, uh, our traditions and our ways of doing things. The shops are open on Sunday, etc., etc., etc. You know all the arguments that come up so many times. So many times this week, I, just my little story, have been attacked. I am pretty well every week, like some of you, but I've been attacked this week and written to again, not just on social media, but I get letters telling me that I'm a false teacher, that I'm done for, that I sit up with God's judgment, that now is my chance to turn and repent or else I'll pay the consequences eternally. How do I respond to that? It's so easy, isn't it, for me, I'm talking about me, to just get my own back, be a bit cleverer than them, see something that's written about me on social media, and respond with a nice little private person that just happens to fit with what I want to say. To outdo meaning theologically, to go to war with them. Desmond Tutu, Paul, that great man who endured so much in South Africa as he wasn't allowed to walk down certain streets, as he watched his parents oppressed, as he watched his people oppressed, as every freedom was removed from him and his people. He learned this and he taught this, that the problem with oppression is that in the end, you find oppression becoming, by becoming an oppressor. You become your enemy. You step into their shoes. You adopt their tactics. You become one of them. Then you fight back. So increasingly in our culture, we have these wars, don't we? We have these silos in which people live. And they shoot at one another on social media. They put one another down. They say wrong of one another. Instead of reach out in love. We slowly put on our armor, and that's been done for centuries. So that the Jewish people are oppressed and put down and forgotten and betrayed through history, as we remember again that. Uh, this week, as that debate has raised, uh, raised about what Diane Ember said, about the, the oppression of black people 
as opposed to what she saw as the oppression of the Jewish people. And people reminding her about the story of the Jewish people through the ages, the Holocaust, the exile, continuing agony. And the huge issue for the Jewish people in Jesus' day was to react to the oppression of the Egyptians, followed by the Babylonians, followed by the Greeks and the Syrians, followed by the Romans. Hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression and pray for the Messiah, the liberator, but turn the liberator into a military leader. And their own personal way of dealing with this was to put on armor. We do it still. We celebrate Iron Man. The problem, says Desmond Tutu, is then when we put on our armor so to protect ourselves, what it ends up becoming is a straitjacket that ties us up. Jesus came, first and foremost, not to liberate the world, but to liberate us. The truth will set you free, he says to his few disciples. At that point, he's not preaching a message of liberation and hope to the world. He's talking to a bunch of people who gather together in a room with him. And he says, the truth will set you free. It will set you free from the cancer of hatred and from fear which cripples you on the inside, freedom will become yours. The Jewish people had this view of the Day of Judgment. I'm sure you've heard about the Day of Judgment. It's, um, you know, it's one of these themes that runs through the entire Bible, isn't it? And there they are, the Jewish people, they're living in uh, slavery in Egypt. This is before Moses comes along and liberates them and says, let my people go and leads them to a new land, away from that old land of slavery to the promised land. It's before all of that. And they develop this view and they write about this view called the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. And the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, if you read some of the texts in the Old Testament, is a terrible day. The day of judgment is a terrible day. And we've somehow carried all of that forward into our theology, Christian theology, the theology of the church. And the day of judgment is when God's going to sort people out. I'm constantly, this week actually, I should have stuck up some of the letters actually, warned that I should be fearful of the day of judgment because on the day of judgment, I'm going to fry. That's what's going to happen to me and be plunged into eternal death without ever dying in hell. I've been told those things this week. The problem with all that thinking, and you can smile about it because it misunderstands totally what the day of judgment as a biblical term in ancient Hebrew was all about. It wasn't the day of wiping anyone out. It was the day of liberation. The day of judgment wasn't something to be feared. It was a day to be hopeful, longed for, celebrated. If you lived in a society where you were oppressed, where you had no voice, where you were not listened to, where you were counted out, 
You didn't fear the day of judgment. You longed for a day of judgment. When a good judge, a righteous judge might rock up and they might actually judge the situation correctly. So the day of judgment wasn't a day to be feared. Just to bring in, um, uh, just for those of you who are into theology at this level, uh, uh, Jürgen Moltmann, the great uh, uh, New Testament theologian, um, a German New Testament theologian talks a lot about this. Why do I mention Jürgen Mortmann and not some football and bore you stiff with a kind of theological name? Uh, 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 the truth is Jürgen Mortmann, still alive, very elderly, but still alive. He was a prisoner of war, but he was German. So he was a prisoner of war in Scotland. And it was in a prisoner of war camp in Scotland that he became a Christian. He was a young man, a very young man, a teenager, and he was serving his country and it was shot down and he finds himself in this camp in Scotland. And a little old lady who he doesn't remember the name of came to him and brought him a Bible. She used to come and see him on a regular basis in this prisoner camp. And he began reading the Bible. And because he read the Bible as a prisoner in Scotland, he decided to follow the way of Jesus, the liberator. And out of that context, he begins to think about the words of Jesus and the words of the Old Testament without any commentary from anyone else. He's a prisoner in a camp. There's no one to preach to him, to tell him what it means or it doesn't mean. He just has to read it for what it is. And in it, he finds hope. And what he finds is this, that the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, is in the words of Mortman himself, the day of hope for all life's losers. That's what he says. For all the losers of history, this is the day of hope. It's the day of reckoning when the truth is told. And liberation comes. So the point is this. If that is the case, how do we live within that now? I don't know if you've heard about this thing, the law of the lid. I was taught this uh, when I first began Oasis years and years, years and years and decades ago. I remember sitting down, um, bemoaning my lot because life was a bit difficult, you know. There were about five or six people that worked for Oasis, and we had no money, and I was struggling, and I thought nobody paid any attention to what we were trying to do. And this old guy explained to me the law of the lid. He said, Steve, what you have to do is let go of yourself. You've got a lid in your life, and the lid is your ego. The lid is seeing, the lid is about you being seen to be right and you being taken seriously by everyone else and your point of view being upheld and acknowledged by everyone else. But that lid becomes a glass ceiling, he said, in your life, and it crushes you. He keeps you it keeps you in. Let go of yourself. Let go of the need to fight to be right the whole time. Let go of the need to be seen to be right the whole time. Let go, I remember him saying this, of the compulsion 
to be a success. Let go of it. It doesn't matter. You will be free and the lid will be gone. The law of the lid applies in my life and it implies in your life. Jesus comes as a liberator and in the words of Tris's beautiful poem, he empties himself. He gives himself. He surrenders himself. And in that moment of surrender to his appetites, in that moment of surrender to his comfort, in the moment of giving up, he's set free. And in the moment of being set free, he brings liberation, not just to himself, but to all of us. When I see others as the enemy, says Donald, uh, says Desmond <laughs> Tutu, when I see others as the enemy, when we see others as the enemy, we risk becoming what we hate. When we oppress others because they've oppressed us, we end up oppressing ourselves. All of our humanity is dependent upon recognizing the humanity in others and reaching out to it. The law of the lit ends our potential or crushes our potential. It traps us in. Letting go, learning to fall, is always liberation. Later this year, as many of you will know, Oasis, we have together this opportunity of opening what would be called Oasis Restore. It's a, the most extraordinary school that we've ever had the opportunity of setting up because unlike all the other schools <clears throat> that we run around the country, where the admissions is around how close do you live to our front door, for Oasis Restore, the admissions uh, criteria will be, have you been sentenced by a judge and a jury for a serious crime, for a violent crime? And young people aged 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 through to the age of 18 will come and they will learn in our school. No going home in the evening, no half-term holidays. These young people sentenced to us, but they will be our students and we will work with them. And the principle, or one of the principles on which everything we're going to do is based, is simply this. It's a principle we've talked about here and find in Jesus as the liberator. If you do not transform your pain, it will most assuredly transmit itself through you to others. If you do not transform your pain, let go of your pain, find freedom from your pain, that pain will continually leak out like a poison through your relationships. So, says Desmond Tutu, it will isolate you. You will be isolated, I will be isolated from my, because of my pain and the way in which I've come to see the world and see others, I end up being isolated from them and trapped 
myself. That is part of the freedom we're going to bring. I'm constantly threatened, like many of you have been and perhaps are, that I'm going to go to hell. There's a good news. There's some good news about that. I don't believe in hell, so that kind of frees me. So I really don't believe in hell, not in that sense. I don't believe in hell as a place after death because I believe that God is love and is redemptive of us all, every one of us. But I do believe in hell as an existential experience. I believe in hell as a reality now. I believe that many people in this city are living in a personal hell. Jesus, of course, never used the term hell. He used the name Gehenna, the little rubbish dump just outside Jerusalem, which is now turned into a wonderful park. And it's still a valley, and that was Gehenna. It's still called Gehenna. That was the rubbish dump. And Jesus simply said, if you don't forgive, if you don't let go of your pain, if you hang on to resentment, if you harbour that grudge for the way that you've been treated, you will never be liberated. And that's like living on Gehenna. That is hell. And it's no good us protesting, but really you don't understand how much pain I've seen or how much rejection I've been through or how I've grown not to trust people because of the way they've treated me. You're still trapped by that lack of trust. You're still trapped by that lack of ability to build relationship or to be open with those who are close to you. However much we protest that we have become as we are because of the stuff that's been done to us, we still end up trapped in the same way. Hell is not a place after death. It's far worse than that. It's an existential experience of millions of people now. It's an experience because of our choice to choose victimhood. I'm a victim. Stuff's been done to me. I can't let go of that. It's a chosen state of victimhood that is an utter dead end in life. And I know you know what I'm talking about, and I know you know it applies to you because it applies to me as well. Any chosen state of victimhood, whatever the reasons for it, are utter dead ends. Utter dead ends. Once we make victimhood the narrative of our life, it never stops gathering evidence about how we've been wronged and we're right and hurt by others in life and perhaps even by God. And it buries us, no one else. The core of Jesus' message is about forgiveness. Scholars say that at least two-thirds of everything Jesus ever talked about was forgiveness. Why? Not so that people would let go of the past in a way that it didn't matter, 
but let go of events in their past so that they could find liberation and hope. Forgiving is the only thing that ever sets anyone free and lifts the lid. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I finished by telling you a story again about the founding of Oasis and the law of the lid and all of that. Well, I had to go out to India. I was invited to India. It's the first time I'd ever been to India in my life. I am half Indian. My dad was born in Madras, Chennai, as it's called now. And um, I was invited in the first year of Oasis existence to go speak in India and do some uh, speak in some schools and speak for the YMCA about youth work. And somebody had told me that Oasis would never survive because we had no money or anything. And they said, therefore, Steve, if you're ever going to make it survive, you have to accept every single offer of work you ever get. Don't turn anything down because it's the only way you'll make next month or the month after we live kind of week by week. So I was invited to go to India. So I went to India, one, because my dad was Indian. I'd never been there. And two, because they were actually going to pay me for going, which meant I could keep my family alive for a few more weeks. It was really that way. So I went to uh, I went to India and I went to went travelled around, which is why Oasis works in India now because I've made friends with people and we develop work there. But the truth of the matter is, I went up to a place called Missouri, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas, because there's a school there called Woodstock, and um, they asked me to speak at Woodstock. It's a famous school and it's for um, it's for the kids of Christian missionaries and diplomats. It's a posh school, um, it's a, you know, and um, they asked me to go speak there, but it's in the foothills of the Himalayas. So I'm up there for a, about a week. You know, when you get there, you have to go through a place called Dehradun where the Beatles learned to play the sitar and all that kind of stuff. It's beautiful. I've only been there once. I'd love to go again. Um, now, I wasn't quite appreciating it at the time, but I arrive in Missouri and I do these, uh, I do these concerts. I used to play the guitar and sing You Are Spared an Awful Lot in Life, let me tell you. I used to do all of this kind of stuff. And then one morning I got up and I went and, you know, I've always struggled with praying, you know, in a kind of formal sense. I think my life's a prayer, but, you know, finding half hour to sit down every morning and kind of it's, it's, it's not kind of the way I am and learn. So I push myself and I, I go up this, this little hill thing well there was a lot of hills there to be honest but I went up this little hill and uh, from from the hut really where I was staying and when I got to the top of the hill I looked down and the mountains the foothills of the mountains were still in the tree line but the mountains just fell away and I sat down and I thought right what a beautiful place I'm going to pray so I shut my eyes and I'm why do you shut your eyes when you're looking at something so beautiful? Anyway, I've been taught to shut my eyes when I pray. So I shut my eyes and I was starting to pray. And and then, you know, I very that's why I'm bad at praying in that way, because I can't concentrate. Do, do, are you in it? Do, I don't suppose any of you are like that. But anyway, so I kind of opened my eyes and I looked down, and there's this um there's this big rock just sat beside me. It's like boulder like that. And I go, I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to pray. And then I opened my eyes again. And I thought, I wonder how far I could chuck that rock down the mountain. I think, no, I've got to pray about 
world peace and all that kind of stuff. So I've had this wrestling match with myself. And in the end, I kind of say to God, look, I can't get this thought out of my head. So I'm just going to stand up and chuck the rock down the mountain. And I promise you, after I've done that, I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to pray. So I get up and I hurl this boulder as, as you know, I really sling it as far as I can. It's so heavy. And I chuck it out and it kind of, you know, falls quickly and it rolls a bit and stops. And I can still see it. Anyway, I thought, well, that didn't work very well. And I sit down and I think, right, now shut your eyes and just pray. So I'm praying and, and I open my eyes and there's this tiny little pebble right next to where the, you know, it's a little pebble like that, you see. And it's right next to where the big rock was, which I couldn't see when the big rock was there. And I'm thinking, I wonder if I could chuck that further than the big boulder and whether it would plummet down through the trees. No, 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 I've got to pray. And then I can't, you know, when you can't let go of something. And then I think, I said, look, God, if I could just chuck the little stone down, I promise I'll concentrate after that. Do you have those conversations with God like that? So I pick up this little stone because I think I've got God's permission at last to chuck the stone down the hill so I can get it cleared out my head and I, so I can think great thoughts or something. And I pick up this little stone and I threw it and I thought as an experiment, throw it with exactly the same force as you threw the first one, you know, at the big boulder. So I threw it, I tried to, you know, very, very scientific this, I threw it with about the same force as I threw the first one and it shot out and it plummeted down and down and down and down and I lost sight of it completely. And I think I might have seen it fall through the top of some of the trees below, but I'm not even sure of that. It was just gone. And I sat down and God said something to me. You know, I don't mean a big voice. You know, I mean internally. That I've never forgotten, though I struggle to live by. He said, Steve, that's the law of the lid. You have to choose to be a big rock or a tiny stone. And every time you can choose to be that little stone, I can do more with you than I can on the occasions that you choose to be a big rock. And the struggle of my life, of course, ever since, has been to try to learn and live that principle out, to let go, to remove the lid, to let go of the stuff that people say or do to me or have done and to live in the liberation that Jesus brings. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free, though it's sometimes painful to reach that point. God bless you.